0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah said, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Back in the 1800s, 1873 to be exact, there was a Belgian priest named Father Damien who asked to be assigned to the island of Molokai in Hawaii. It was a leper colony. He noticed that there were no doctors, there were no clergymen, and Father Damien could not conceive of any human being spending his or her last days without any kind of human comfort. So he decided to be that comfort. He went there and served for 12 years. While he was there, he bathed the lepers. He dressed their festering wounds. He built coffins for them, dug their graves and ministered to them for 12 years, even preaching in a local congregation. Until one Sunday. One Sunday when everything changed. On that Sunday, Father Damien stood before his congregation of lepers and opened up his robes to reveal the beginning of his own leprosy. And he began his sermons with this phrase. We lepers. Everything had changed. Now he was not an outsider looking in. Rather than being an observer with empathy and concern, he was a leper himself. He had entered into their disease. This is Good Friday. And really, in God's mind, it's Great Friday because of what it meant for the world. This is the day that we commemorate and even celebrate God taking on human flesh and being willing to suffer. But it's puzzling to some of us. At least it is to onlookers. The world looks at Christians celebrating death and they just can't figure it out. What was the purpose? Why Would God require the death of His Son before He would forgive anybody? And as Isaiah is speaking to us, he's drawing a graphic picture. And he continues, Surely He has borne our griefs, and He has carried our sorrows. And we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. Here's the key verse. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Why would God require the death of his son? Isaiah tells us it's for a redemptive purpose. And his soul would be made an offering for sin. But that seems so extreme, doesn't it? Isn't that what the world thinks? Boy, that's extreme. Why, before God could forgive people, would He require the death of His Son? As an example, if, if I did something to you, if I sinned against you, you would, at least you would be required to forgive me. You wouldn't ask that anybody be killed before you would forgive me. You would just forgive me. So the question is, why wouldn't God play by those rules? Why wouldn't he simply just benevolently forgive people's sins without requiring the death of his son? Why can't God do that? Well, that sort of questioning betrays a sort of ignorance. It shows when that question is asked that the one who asks it is ignorant both of man and of God. That he is ignorant, number one, of how great our sin really is. And number two, how great our God really is. The ignorance is twofold. One is of the heinousness of sin itself and the other is of the holiness of God himself. And because of those two realities, the only place where mercy and justice could meet was at the cross. And the victim had to be an innocent victim. Now, when we talk about how serious sin is, some people get very uncomfortable. In fact, have you noticed That over the last several years, sin isn't even a part of the American vocabulary. It's dropped out. It's simply cloistered in some religious vocabulary spoken only by a few. Nobody speaks of sin anymore. They speak of problems or hang-ups or issues or I'm a product of my environment, but nobody wants to admit sin So whether it's Darwinism or Unitarianism or Agnosticism or Atheism, that word has dropped out of our vocabulary. I was reading the words of one prominent pastor who even said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ or under the banner of Christianity that has proved more detrimental to the human condition than the crude an uncouth idea that mankind is lost and in need of a Savior. That came from a clergyman. What does the Bible say about what that clergyman said? Well, the Bible says very plainly, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. A few years back, there was a very prominent medical doctor and... Psychiatrist named Carl Menninger. And and he contends that we ought to bring the word sin back into our vocabulary. We've lost it. And says this famous psychiatrist in a book he wrote entitled Whatever Happened to Sin, he makes a strong case. He says, What was once labeled sin has gotten new labels these days. Some people call them crimes instead of sin and says menninger that's a very convenient way of passing the responsibility from the church to the state from the pastor to the policeman now it's the policeman's responsibility these are just crimes that the state deals with others will call sins sickness well they're sick it's not a sin they're just sick Now we have taken people out of the realm of punishment or the need for atonement and put them in the realm of all they need is treatment instead of forgiveness or atonement. And then others will take the word sin and activities that are done that are sinful and simply say, well, it's a collective problem. It's the product of one's environment. I am the way I am because of you. It's your fault. I can't be held responsible. It's my conditioning. And so Menninger says, please bring the word back into Western culture. And he asks preachers, clergymen, please don't soft-pedal sin. Call it what it is so that people can find forgiveness. How serious is it? Well, Paul said, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. What did God say to Adam? In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. And then Paul expanded on that. He said, by one man, that's Adam, by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all men, for all have sinned. So that's our problem. We're infected We have a virus more deadly than the HIV virus. It's the SIN virus. Everybody has it. It's deadly. It's fatal. No escaping it. Adam did that. We have him to thank. But that's not only a part of our nature. It's a part of our choice. We commit individual acts that are an affront to God. I remember as a boy being taken on vacation by my father and mother to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. And there's a beautiful lake right in front of it. And there early one morning, you can see the reflection. I remembered like it was yesterday. The reflection, the mirror duplicate of those mountains in the clear, pristine, untouched waters of that lake. And then it was either myself or my brother, one of us grabbed a flat little stone because we wanted to see how far you could skip that flat stone across that perfectly glass like surface. So we cocked the arm and pitched it, and something happened. What happened is the image of the mountains reflected in the lake was suddenly distorted. That which was perfectly clear, perfectly reflective, was now marred. When Adam sinned, he took the stone and threw it into the lake of humanity and marred the image of God in man. So the wages of sin is death. So when a person says, why on earth would God require death before He would forgive people? It's because we don't realize how badly infected we really are. And that we need the cross. Second, the holiness of God. Not just the heinousness of sin, but the holiness of God. Requires the cross. You see, holy God is... Holy, incompatible with sin, with unrighteousness. The Bible declares that. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3, the prophet says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look at wickedness. So that effectively, sin will separate a person forever from God unless something is done because of God's holiness. We're separated. Were lost. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. God's hand is not short that it cannot save. His ear is not too heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have made it so that he has hidden his face from you. That's the sinfulness of man. And it is the holiness of God. So do you see? God, holy God, perfect God, cannot coexist with sinful man. One of two things must happen. Holy God must destroy unholiness or, or holy God must declare that which is unholy, holy. He declares those who are unrighteous, righteous. And how does he make that declaration? Only at the cross. Only because of the cross. And actually, isn't that the story of the whole Bible, that there's a gulf fixed between man and God? Remember in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle that was built and not everybody could go into the holy of holies, only a special person after special rituals and only once a year. And so there was this gulf that separated people. And the only way to approach God... you remember how that was? The death of an animal, an innocent animal. The blood must be shed. That animal must give up its life. And then and only then could there be an approach. And that takes us to the cross. Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could never live, and then took all of our sins on Himself, so effectively God said... To the leper colony, I'll take the rap. I'll take the disease. I'll come among you and I will take all of your wickedness and all of your evil and I'll put it on myself so that when I die on the cross, it's done, man. It's finished. It's over. Once and for all. My cross will become the huge sponge that absorbs it all. The huge eraser that forgives it all. So then, the cross is the only place that God will meet with mankind. It's the only place. It's the great axis of where man can meet with God. You might look at it this way. The cross is where both mercy and... And justice could meet. How can God be a God of love and a God of justice at the same time? How can holy, perfect God meet with sinful, rebellious man? Only at the cross. He came, He took the rap, He took the punishment, and then He declares you righteous because of it. What a deal that is! It's the deal of a lifetime. So look at it this way. God's forgiveness is the collision between God's perfection and man's rebellion. And that collision was a violent one that took place 2,000 years ago on a cross. There were three men who were walking toward the throne on judgment day They had a bone to pick with God. They were quite angry. They couldn't wait to have an audience with God on Judgment Day and give God a piece of their mind. One man piped up and he said, I was hanged for a crime I didn't commit. I suffered unjustly. I'm going to talk to God about it. Another one, said, I suffered a long, debilitating disease. I suffered for months and years, and then finally I died. I'm going to talk to God about that. The third piped up and he said, well, my son died tragically in an accident. He was quite young, and it was a drunk driver that hit him. I'm going to talk to God about that. We've suffered. Yeah, we've suffered. And as they approached the throne, angry and ready To tell God a few things, they looked at the judge himself and noticed that he had scars in his hands and scars on his feet and a scar on his side and his brow had been beaten. And they were silent. They realized he too had unjustly suffered and thus he was fit to be Lord and fit to be Judge. As we take communion today, as we consider the cross this year, I want you to know that God had you in mind. God wants to forgive. God loves to show mercy. Understand that. It's not that God reluctantly forgives. God loves to extend that. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah said, to make his soul an offering for sin. It pleased God. When you asked Jesus into your life and you said, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and I let Jesus take all of my sins, that pleased the Father for that was the reason He sent His Son. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He had you in mind. Know that today. The Bible calls Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I personally believe that the first taste of that joy was when Jesus was actually hanging on the cross and one of the criminals next to him said, in faith, before he died, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I think Jesus, with all of the joy he had at that moment, said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. That guy had it. That guy was at it. And you know what? So are you. You're at the right place. It's the right time. To consider the great sacrifice. And it was a joy for Jesus to say, I forgive you and you and you and all of you as my children. It's his great joy to do that. And that's why when we come together and celebrate Good Friday, and we do so by taking the elements of communion, we know and we believe that all is forgiven. God holds nothing against you today if you trust in His Son. If His blood has covered you and your sins, He holds nothing against you. And even if Satan is accusing you today, please don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. You've surrendered to Him and He's done it all and you're His. And if you trust in Him... You're not like less saved now than you were when you first accepted Christ or you're more saved now than you were then because you know more. It's a finished work. I love that last stanza of that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It says, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. And that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. So we take these elements remembering back 2,000 years ago, but holding fast today that it's a done deal. He came. He took the rap. He took the disease. He took the S-I-N virus on Himself, having lived the perfect life and dying the substitutionary death. We believe that we're His. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for what this day means. We thank You for what the cross means. We thank You, Lord, that looking at the cross, it's more than an emblem to us. It's a demonstration of your love. You love the world. But because your love is also a holy love, you not only yearn for people, but you require that justice must be enacted. So rather than having it enacted upon us and us dying for our own rebellion, Jesus died for our rebellion. And we believe that. We simply believe that. And because we believe that, we know that we're saved because of it. By faith in Jesus alone. I pray that that truth would be fresh and continue to transform our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.